You're listening to episode 16 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring stories of Warlord and the Golden Age Hour Man. Oh, and Amazing Man is in there too, I think. To the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and once again, we've got three stories to tell this episode. That means I'll be joined by three special guests, each more special than the other. The first, most special guest today is both an economics professor and a fan of Warlord comics, despite the Secret Origins story. He also hosts the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network that includes the Quarterbin Podcast with his daughter, Emily. Secret admirers, please welcome Professor Alan Middleton. How are you today, sir? Hello, hello, hello. Great to be here. Really enjoying what this show is, uh, is turning into. Thank it was you. a great idea, and so far, pretty well executed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, I forgot to bring an apple to leave on your desk, sir, so <laughs> I'm, I'm already behind, but. Well, I appreciate here being Amazing Man and Our Man's opening act. That's great. That's such a high bar to live up to, that Amazing Man origin. We will, we will certainly get to that later on. And Professor, since you have a postgraduate degree, I'm sure you know that Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And for your benefit, I have calculated that to purchase all 54 issues at cover price would cost about $78.40. No! Yes. Unfortunately, for 120 stories, that shakes out to about 65 cents per story, which is well over your 25-cent threshold. Never, never, never! I don't know how much you paid for, for this issue. I know exactly how much you paid for the next one that you're going to be <laughs> appearing on. <laughs> That's our secret. <laughs> okay, well, we are talking about the origin of Warlord here. A character and concept created by Mike Grell and premiering in first issue special number 8 in November of 1975, before spinning into the Warlord ongoing series that ran 133 issues from 75 to 88. That is pretty much all I know in terms of history and continuity, so you have to help me out, Professor. What is your familiarity with the character? Well, you know the expression, the golden age of everything is 11? Mm-hmm. And that is perfect for me because that is about the exact age I was when I discovered 
Warlord. All right. So it just hit that fantasy thing just perfectly for me. I had also... Uh, Mike Grell was just about the first creator that I knew of as a creator. You know, up to the time you're you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, these are just comics. Right, right. You don't recognize that anyone in particular writes them or draws them. Right. And I was a fan of The Legion, and he had done a little bit of artwork, a lot of covers for The Legion. And I'm generally not an art guy when it comes to comics. For me, it's not just story first. It's almost story exclusively. Mm -hmm. But the distinctive nature of his art style and, again, hitting that perfect medieval fantasy Tolkien-esque sword and sorcery vibe was just perfect for me. And I've just been a huge fan of specifically the Grell portions of Warlord, which were eh, roughly the first 60 issues or so. And this was one of the titles that did not survive the great comics purge of 1999. And when we moved from Virginia to Ohio for the job that would make me Professor Allen, (laughs) we were, you know, doing a little work and, you know, figuring out, you know, the budget of the move. And we had the movers over and we quickly realized that uh, movers charge by the pound and comics are really heavy. (laughs) And I was in a bit of a, a, a lull. This was my collecting lull. So I figured, okay, I've got whatever it was, seven, eight, nine long boxes. Let's move three or four of them to Ohio, perhaps. So threw everything up on eBay, and among the ones that sold, counting the annuals and first issue special, all 140 issues of Warlord were gone, along with All-Star Squadron, Green Lantern, John Sable, Rom. Oh, some of these hurt just saying them. I can imagine. All gone. And fortunately, through the miracles of the quarterbin, I have been able to reaccumulate over 100 of the 140 issues at my preferred price point of 25 cents each. <laughs> now, if I want to get the early stuff, I'm going to have to break that at some point. And there's even a, a showcase that is now out of print and runs about double its cover price. Mm-hmm. So even the cheap, inexpensive showcase way of getting some of these books is not quite as cheap and easy as one would hope. Don't they understand where you're coming from? Don't they get it? You would think, man. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I have never read a Warlord story, and I include this issue of Secret Origins when I I would it. posit you still haven't. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit more detail. It just it, – it was before me. I was getting into comics later, and I actually – Maybe Star Wars is sort of the line of demarcation, but I felt mm, like sure. I kind of missed out on the the sword and sandal and sword and sorcery kind of thing. Like I, I didn't get into Tolkien. I didn't like He Man was probably the closest thing. Like in the, as a child growing up in the eighties, <laughs> right. I read a few issues of Conan, but that didn't have a, a strong enough appeal to me. Um, so this is just a character that I always heard. You know, it was one of those sort of isolated, you know, just things that had a really strong creative run by Mike Grell, like who who was running the show for a good chunk of it. And I heard about it sort of conceptually, but it just never, I never thought about uh, reading it. And honestly, I probably my best exposure to the character and the concept was from an episode of Justice League Unlimited, where I think Green Lantern and Supergirl go to Scarterra somehow on accident. That is pretty much how anyone gets there. (laughs) 
Southwest does not yet have a direct flight. <laughs> I was going to say, there isn't a basic train that goes out there. So. All right. Well, we are going to take a short promotional break, folks. And when we come back, the origin of a guy who knew Warlord back before he was cool. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. We're back, and we're looking at the first story in Secret Origins, issue 16. The book was cover dated July 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the actual on-sale date was April 7th of that year. The cover was drawn by Stephen DiStefano and Dick Giordano, and shows Amazing Man standing in front of a stack of DC Comics with posters of the issue's other stars, Our Man and Warlord, in the background. What do you think of this cover? It is hard to think of two characters with more diametrically opposed fashion choices. <laughs> Our man, completely covered, head to toe, black and yellow, and that he's got more yellow cape than he knows what to do with. <laughs> he's got the, the cape going up over, over and a mask. It's, uh, again, about as much flesh covered as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And Warlord... With as little flesh covered as possible and still be able to be published in the mainstream DCU of the <laughs> mid-70s. And Amazing Man is attempting to uh, combine their two looks. He has a wooden sword in his hand and is draped in the, uh, his version of the Hour Man costume. Right. Yeah, I love the what looks like. It looks like a yellow bath towel. It's just so rough-hewn. <laughs> um, but I like that draped over as the cape and the, the color pattern with the sword and everything. Almost kind of – it's not a mockery. It's a delightful cover. I, I, it, somehow it works. And because it's – I think because Amazing Man makes this work. And it is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek. It's sort of breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, I, I, I really like this cover for some reason, even as crowded as it is. Yes. And this is an interesting mix because you've had some issues – before this, mm-hmm. where you know the two characters have really been in separate, you know, separate halves of the right, cover, right. and really not interacting, right. and, and you've had a few where they have been uh, interacting, and this is a little bit of both, because in a sense, you have Amazing Man, embarrassing enough to say, right. is in essence interacting with these these two characters. Yeah, he's reaching out to both of them. He's blending the two of them. Yeah, it's it's much more effective, I think, than the cover to issue 13, which has Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt on one side and Nightwing on the other, and the Whip is the third character who's just in like a little circular insert panel. And it's just... Right. Eh, I think it's kind of a forgettable cover. But this one, the way DiStefano drew Amazing Man sort of bringing all of these 
disparate elements together, it makes it much more visually interesting. Like, I, I look at this cover, and I want to open it up and find out what's inside. <laughs> and, of course, in his stack of comics mm-hmm. are a warlord and a young all-stars Infinity, Inc. Of course, Amazing Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Flash Batman and Wonder Woman. So, again, there's some connection there. Yep. You know, it seems like someone was at least ambitious. <laughs> And I appreciate that in, in art. Do you think those all came out of a quarter bin? Uh, some of them look like they deserve to be in there currently, yeah. <laughs> I, I do not see a single bag nor board. <laughs> so say what you will about Amazing Man. Not a great collector. Well, we can say a lot more than that. And we will. <laughs> all right. Are you ready to talk about the origin of Warlord, such as it is? To some extent, yes. Okay. The Warlord Exiles was written by Michael Fleischer with art and lettering by Adam Kubert. We start in a Soviet gulag, which is always a cheerful way to start a comic book. And a narrator, who we learn is American prisoner Danny Maddox, addresses us. What you're looking at down there ain't exactly Club Med. It's Gulag Metschovsky, a Soviet labor camp in the Siberian wastes. It's about 1975, and he's been there a couple of years. We learn that he supplements his diet with the occasional rat. When I can, I make a fire and roast him. When I can't make a fire, I eat him anyway. Either way, I survive. Maddox reminisces about his youth. When he was a child, he was a classic bully, even to the point of shaking down kids for their lunch money. But his little junior mafia gig comes to an abrupt end when a young Travis Morgan intervenes to protect his best friend Chuck. And his sister, Rachel. To this day, I still don't understand how he beat me. As best as I can figure it, he just got lucky. Rachel and Travis begin dating. And almost immediately after graduating from high school, they are married. Practically the whole school was invited, except yours truly. Danny next joins the Air Force, where he's pretty good at flying, but he is kicked out due to dereliction of duty and decking an officer. So what the hell? I joined the army. They'll take anybody. He ends up stationed in Cameron Bay in Vietnam and pretty much picked up where he left off before Travis decked him back in school. He begins selling military supplies on the black market and what the heck sells a little secret intel here and there to the Soviets. Then one day, Lieutenant Colonel Travis Morgan of the Air Force arrives and stumbles upon a group of soldiers selling military supplies. He reports it to Danny, not realizing he's the kingpin, because (laughs) Travis believes people can change, or he's naive, or he's generally clueless. I'm going to hope it's he believes people can change. Danny realizes now that he is in a pickle. If he acts as is required by regulations the soldiers will rat him out as the organizer of this whole operation. But if he doesn't, Travis will suspect he's involved, and as we've established, Travis can deck him. So Danny hatches a plan. He rats out his Russian compatriots, who are running a secret bacterial warfare thing, to U.S. Air Force intelligence, knowing that they'd send Travis to investigate. Then he arranges for the Russians to smuggle him to the lab and warns them about Morgan's approaching spy flight. So the Russians attempt to take Travis down, but he's too good a pilot. So they coerce Danny to get into a plane and shoot him down himself. Danny does irrevocably damage Travis's plane, 
but Travis totally destroys Danny's plane. Danny ejects and is captured and then imprisoned at the camp from the start of the issue. Travis, of course, is also forced to eject and ends up landing on Barsoom, meeting his future wife, Deja Thoris. No, wait, sorry, that would be John <laughs> Carter. I mean... I was going to say, I know the property well enough to know that that's not true. <laughs> I mean, he lands inside the hollow earth in Scartaris and ends up meeting his future wife, Tara. So, let's see, I'm pretty sure Warlord appeared on one page. Now, to be fair, it was only a 15-page story. I'm not sure if that's because they had so little faith in it. <laughs> or when they got it, they said, let's cut this, make this as short as we can. I don't know. I'm a fan, and not much happened. You may have noticed that. Yeah. When I think of Warlord, I think of Mike Grell, totally conceptually, like from my distance. So I was actually surprised that he didn't work on this, and I, of course, found out that Michael Fleischer had been writing the book around the time that this issue came out of Secret right. Origins. Yeah, uh, Fleischer wrote, he picked up at issue 100 okay. and, wrote to, and, and wrote to the end, and when this... Secret Origins issue came out, they were at about, I think, 119, so there was a little over a year, a year and a half left in the title's run, and Fleischer had been in it for about a year and a half. Now, this story itself is not so much a retelling of the first appearance in the first issue special, or even a retelling of Warlord number one. It's actually more a direct retelling of Warlord 91 just cover dated only a couple years before this, March 1985. That was Carrie Burkett and Dan Jurgens. Because okay. that story includes Danny Maddox and Rachel Maddox. Uh, Rachel only appears in, in those two issues. No, she was wholly invented for the Jurgens retelling of the story and then uh, Fleischer's retelling of that retelling. So you know, those first couple issues of Warlord were simply Air Force pilot shot down by Soviets mm -hmm. over the Arctic crash lands inside the earth in a mystical, magical land of dinosaurs and hot chicks. <laughs> I mean, fantasy, adventures, and swords, and dinosaurs. Of course. Of course. Um, I was expecting to see Grell and got Michael Fleischer instead, but in the middle of this story is a house ad for Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters. And you see what you missed. You see what could have been. I, if for me, just turning that page, it was like a middle finger <laughs> right in this. It was like, hey, this guy used to be doing this book. But, okay, let's go back to the beginning of this story. I knew that Warlord was about what you said. It was about Air Force pilot who crashes in this jungle land full of dinosaurs and monsters and hot, scantily clad chicks. And the first page is a Russian gulag. Okay. Yeah, yes, go, it is. Going yes, left when is. I expect them to go right. That's not a problem. So ex explain how this story fits into that continuity a little bit better. Like, does the character where this story is tangentially related to Travis Morgan? It, it feels much more like Danny Maddox's story. Well, it is. That's it. That's not even like a misconception on my part. It is his story. He's telling about how he ended up here. Does at, he the, at the back? end, you know, there's a promise from Maddox of, you know, right. I will hunt you down and find you. Was that from, promise fulfilled? In my memory, it was not. Though, again, these last 40 issues, mm -hmm. by the time it got into Michael Fleischer, are not quite as memorable. 
at least in my mind. When I think of Warlord, I think of those first 50 issues in, in, in particular. Yeah. And the little bit of research that I did did not list Danny Maddox coming back. So my impression is that it was an unfulfilled promise. It's not a poorly written story. The story is good. It's just mm-hmm. – it feels like false advertising. And to some extent, I think you know, Fleischer I don't think is a bad storyteller. I think there's a bit of a mismatch with this character. And sure. I, felt, I felt that reading these issues as they were coming out in the mid-'80s. And not only had some of the magic been lost from Grell, but Grell to Dan Jurgens to Michael Fleischer, there is a decline at least in the creativity, the big picture aspect of what Warlord should be, what Skartaris should be. He does do one of my favorite storytelling conventions, which is when we are told something different than what we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, when they're kids, and when he talks about how Travis Morgan... <laughs> Uh, takes him down, and as you read it, to this day, I still don't understand how he beat me. As best I can figure, he must have just got a lucky shot. Or he must have just got lucky. <laughs> no, Travis stomped your butt. Yes. And, and then he says, and besides, what the hell, I didn't really want Chucky's lunch money anyway. <laughs> yeah, of course, sure. it's you know, an adult you know, trying to cover his butt in, in hindsight. Exactly. But, exactly. No, I, I, really so, I do love that in those scenes, Travis's hair is white already. Okay, okay explain that to me. Was that... Like, <laughs> Because every every time I've seen images of Warlord, I assume the dude is like sixty years old, a very spry, strong sixty. But Mm-mm, nope, nope, nope. He has been that way ever since the beginning. Okay. Now, in the original story, in the the Warlord ninety one, he is a blonde, you know, mm-hmm. sandy hair, okay. blonde. In that story, uh, or at least on the cover, as I flip through it, he does have white hair. In the actual story, that uh, Burkett and Jurgens. Okay. It. Well, actually, it goes back and forth. A little blonde, yeah, blonde there, yeah. So this is the time when it really changes into he's had white hair his whole life. So he's like a young Pietro Maximoff, or there you go, there you go. I mean, but he was an active Air Force pilot just out of high school when he crashed. So thirty, maybe. Yeah. Given how inbred the DC universe can be at times. I'm surprised that I couldn't find any familial connection between Travis Morgan, Air Force pilot, and Ace Morgan, the pilot from Challengers of the Unknown. Well, if Roy Thomas had written either one, there certainly would have been. You know it. (laughs) Actually, Ace Morgan. I also know that I I am not a – I haven't been in the service, and I I know some folks who have been, and and I know that there are different standards for different branches. Mm Mm-hmm. Of our military, and I guess we were looking for warm bodies <laughs> to send to Vietnam, but I doubt the Army would take a guy who just got drummed out of the Air Force for beating up a superior officer. Just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like – though I do like the dig from one service to the other. I mean that part actually seemed real, right. You know, the, the inter-service rivalry. Yeah, I didn't even know that last – like when he says, yeah, they booted me for dereliction of duty and decking an officer. The fact that we didn't get a panel showing him hit that officer made me think that That's might be true. another lie. That, like that maybe it, it could have just been gross incompetence. <laughs> they yeah, he, he does seem to think he's a pretty great pilot. Yeah. And of course, he's the one who loses the, the dogfight because, of course, mm-hmm. he loses to Travis Morgan right. all his life. I do not like Travis being so naive, being, hey, buddy, look, 
you know, we're meeting here in Vietnam. Remember the old days? Right. We were buddies, right? And, oh, these guys under you, they're <laughs> running this scheme, just like the one you ran when we, when we were kids, but mm-hmm. I'm sure you're not involved. Yeah. I mean, come on. He's going to be running an entire civilization under the earth. He is actually more street smart than that. In terms of the characterization of Warlord, such as we have it in about, I don't know, eight panels total, that was, uh, to me, a total misfire. And see, again, I could accept that as being part of Danny's version of the story. That's fair. Except in this case, the art doesn't contradict mm, it. Right. The images of, a- of I was going to say Ace, the images of Travis show him pretty Aw shucks, smiley, and, yeah. and seems pretty friendly with this guy when he really should just be looking at him with utter contempt and disdain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying there. I agree. I, I do think as far as we get, again, he's not in his full warlord gear mm-hmm. at, at the end, but those shots are pretty good. The final splash page is pretty good. And I think Adam Kubert is not a bad Mike Grell replacement to me they have somewhat similar styles so that i I think the art is pretty good and like you said there's a a nice storytelling technique that it on occasion does contradict the narration which is one of the things that's sort of unique about comic books you know comic books is a medium where where you can do that pretty clearly Mm -hmm. but it's a little boring sorry it's a lot boring and a little short yeah, I, and to I, some extent, the shortness may be a blessing. I wouldn't <laughs> want this exact story stretched out over five more pages, but I would like another five pages of I don't know action, right? Something. Yeah. There are. There I are, blame Amazing Man for this. Yes, it's totally his. There are flourishes. There are tiny little bits, like character moments, that are really good. I like the fact that the Russian officers blame Danny for like mm-hmm. failing to shoot down, even though it's their. You know, anti-aircraft weaponry that's losing it. And then they, he has to basically go out and clean up the mess just so that he doesn't get thrown in the gulag, which he does anyway. Um, but towards the end, it's strange. I mean, the story is told from the perspective of the villain, essentially. And right. he kind of wins. He does shoot down right. Travis Morgan. I mean, Morgan's plane like ends up – he crashes into Scarteris because of his dogfight with – Danny Maddox. So that's true. You know, we joked and we said that you know Travis won, or made that comment that Travis won the dogfight. But from Danny's perspective, you know, Travis's body is never recovered, at least on top of the Earth. Right. So to his mind, he did win, and yet the Russians rewarded him with a trip to the Gulag. Anyway, mm-hmm. the last page or the last two pages really visually are so good. I mean, just like once he crashes, once he sees the dinosaurs, that last, the final mm-hmm. splash page yeah. of him being attacked by like a, a demon velociraptor, <laughs> and he's just got his little handheld knife, and there's a half-naked woman by him. It is beautiful, and I, I saw the page, I was like, oh, I want to read this story. <laughs> I want to read so much of this story. Oh, and I couldn't, because it's not I, here. Yes, if you want to read more of this story, I would recommend that uh, showcase... <laughs> <laughs> of Warlord, go back to the beginning, or as early as you can find in the cheap bins, mm-hmm. preferably up to about issue 50. I think that's about where Grell, as full-time writer, 
and and penciler. Mm-hmm. I think he penciled through fifty three, yeah. and at that point he was giving up the penciling chores. And from about fifty one to the end of his writing, it was really ghosting. Yeah, with I guess his wife was ghosting the stories for him. So I think uh, I've, I talked about issue fifty on I think it's called the uh, it's like the flame the flame in the puddle podcast. <laughs> Something like that. I, I don't remember. It was something like that. Uh, a couple of guys begged me to come on. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, uh, it's Rob, they did. Rob Kennedy and yeah, Ron. I think Shemp is his yeah, partner. I, I, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Shecky. <laughs> exactly. They uh, they had me on to talk about cheap comic books. Huh? Original idea. <laughs> anyway, and uh, I talked about Warlord Fifty, which is really the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. That's really where the first. Those first 50 issues really come to a conclusion there in, in issue 50. And I think after that, Grell loses his steam. That was, in essence, the long story that he wanted to tell. And so you know, he starts to bow out his contributions to the title. Mm-hmm. And by 70, he's totally out. Yeah, I was trying to find out what he was doing around the time that this issue of Secret Origins came out, thinking that it would have been nice if he came back just for this. Um, this came out as the house ad shows. Like I think uh, Longbow Hunters came out two mm-hmm. months later. He was probably doing what, the other book that you mentioned. I think he was working on John Sable. Yes, uh, an- an- another one of my favorites. Yeah, so that would have been coming out like almost concurrently with this. When I was at Boston Comic Con, I did actually have a moment where I thought, you know, I should do a little bit more due diligence and pick up some Warlords. So I, I went through some of the back issue bins, but I could not find them for a price that would have made you proud. So they were all, they were all way, way overpriced actually in the bins that I was looking. I can believe that. Yeah. So uh, this story does not make me inclined to want to read more Warlord, but certainly your passion for the character does. (laughs) And I have heard other people who swear by it. So, one of those days, and maybe it'll probably be that. I'll probably check out that showcase if I can find that at a good price, because the premise intrigues me. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, it does. It's it's pretty simple. It's it's guys with swords fighting dinosaurs. That's what else do you want? Guys with jetpacks fighting <laughs> aliens. <laughs> wait, maybe wait, that's, someday. That's, that's maybe next week. someday. Maybe someday. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any other recommended readings or big thoughts on the character of Warlord? No, I am. I am exhausted. Okay. You, you've you 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 you've tapped me dry on my warlord knowledge. Okay. Well, this is a little bit of a shorter segment, but it was a little bit of a shorter story, and not all that inspired. Um, and this episode will be crowded enough, so we'll probably call this segment to a close. Professor Allen, where can people find you online if they want to hear more of your thoughts on comics or really anything? Our home base is Relatively Geeky, the Relatively Geeky Network, at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, or you can find us in iTunes. And you'll find content there almost once a week or so under many different podcast names. Uh, my solo show, The Quarterbin Podcast, is all about books I literally paid 25 cents or less for. And also Shortbox Showcase, the show I do with my my scion, my progeny, Emily, and we talk about topics and concepts in comics and related media. That is where we can be founded. They're great shows. Um, I've been listening consistently for a while now. They're, it's such fun. I love the rapport that you have with your daughter. I wish I had that rapport with 
anybody. Um, <laughs> uh, and actually, I, I've, the, your boom and bust episode of Relatively Geeky, when you were talking about the comics in the 90s and the rise and fall, I've listened to that episode a couple of times. That was um, really... That was that was very special. I liked that. That was very good. Had great guests and shag. Yeah, and the different perspectives that everybody yeah. put on it, the history, which was mm-hmm. very, very interesting. And for me, it was a nostalgic kick in thinking back because for me, that was kind of the dawn of when I started really hardcore collecting. Right. Um, was sure. right around 92, 93. Uh, Professor, it was an honor and a privilege to have you on the Secret Origins podcast. I enjoyed talking to you, and I hopefully – Maybe we can have you again in the future sometime. I'm just saying, if you send me a little bit better story, <laughs> maybe one coming up. I'm, I don't know who you have booked for next episode or whatever. Just bump them off. I mean, Frank or Shag or whatever. Give them the boot. I swear, Coach, I can do better than this. I swear. I deserve a better story. All right. Well, Okay. I'll let you do Adam Strange. I'll take Shag off that story. But don't tell him. Keep this between us. Absolutely. No one's going to know. Okay. That's good. All right, folks. We're just getting started here on Secret Origins, Episode 16. Don't go away. Director Fury, the internet is besieged with lame, lifeless podcasts. What we need is a hard-charging, foul-mouthed band of brothers with chemistry, big brains on comics, and personality. Personality goes a long way. What we need is the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. I'm the Legal Machine. Diabolu Frank. And I am Mr. Fix-It. The Marvel Superheroes have arrived! Nick, internet radio is saved! Get this mother podcast off mother iTunes. The Marvel Superheroes podcast can also be found on Shout Engine, the Internet Archive, and on Rolled Spine Podcasts blogs. When you're down and out, when you're on the street, when evening falls so back with our second of three origin stories in this episode, and I'm thrilled to welcome back Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water Podcast. How are you, Rob? I'm amazing. <laughs> Great. Good to hear. Uh, Rob is here to help me cover the secret origin of Amazing Man. Not Amazing Man, 
Amazing Man, the heroic alter ego of Siegfried Horatio Hunch III, created by Bob Rosakis and Stephen DiStefano. Are you a fan of this character, Rob? I absolutely am. I read every issue when the book came out and uh, stayed with it through the various specials, and every time they worked him in somewhere, I sort of found it out. I, I really do like Amazing Man. And when you say every issue of his story, you're talking about all 12 issues. All 12. And then the three specials. Yeah. It was not, you know, not long running. Yeah. If you, if you don't know, listeners, Amazing Man debuted in Amazing Man, issue number one in 1986. Really, October of 1985, based on the on-sale date. The series did run for 12 issues and was succeeded by three specials. After that, he appeared in Who's Who and maybe some other places. Uh, yeah, I think he's made little cameos here and there, but I think his last full-on was was that special. Okay, well, the secret origin of Amazing Man, which takes all of one page to tell, written by Bob Rosakis, drawn by Stephen DiStefano, with inks by Carl Kiesel, letters by Bob Lapham, and Bob Greenberger, who stepped in to edit the story as much as he needed to. The story opens in an alley where the aforementioned Siegfried Horatio Hunch III is digging through a dumpster where he finds a helmet. And he puts the helmet on, and he calls himself Amazing Man. That's pretty much what I got. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, Ryan. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Anything to add? (laughs) Uh, I mean, okay. I I like the idea that it's a one-pager because it does – it's the kind of what-the-hell spirit of Mm -hmm. Amazing Man. Um, So so I enjoy that. It's sandwiched as it is in between two very, very different stories. Yes. Um, At the same time, I don't think this is a – okay. I guess I was about to say this is not a great commercial for Amazing Man, but I don't think it was meant to be because by then Amazing Man was already canceled. So – uh, it's not really meant to be a commercial because it's it doesn't like you could go out and buy Amazing Man anyway. So I guess it kind of does what it was supposed to do. It was just supposed to be a little gag throwaway. It is. It it feels like an old kind of comic strip. It's adorable. It's an adorable yeah. little story. De Stefano's art is beautiful. This character design is so sweet and it's just it's cute i i love the dog there's a dog running through this thing that gets a can stuck on its nose and at the very end amazing man plucks the can off its nose and that's like the first life that he saves it's, right right it, it's cute but like you said it's okay this tells me i i feel like this tells me everything i need to know about the character but it, 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 it gives you the spirit. You've basically gotten the spirit of it. Um, it's actually a little sillier than the comic because the comic actually had some some more dramatic elements in terms of the other characters. But it, in terms of the amazing man himself, yeah, you pretty much get it with this. It doesn't really compel me to buy more, even if I could. But yeah, that was the origin. Do you have any other thoughts on the character Amazing Man or the story? Um, I, you know, I give DC all the credit in the world for trying something different. I mean, you look back at, at DC in the mid '80s, and they really were trying lots of different things. And uh, you know, they had Dark Knight Returns, and they had Watchmen, and that's the super grim stuff. Yep. But then on the other end of the spectrum, they had Amazing Man, and they had some other like Nathaniel Dusk, which not was not comedy, but it was not superhero. So they. They really were trying lots of different things and not everything worked. And they gave Amazing Man its due diligence. I think giving it a year was fair. Uh, I, I tend to, on the Fire and Water, slam Frank Miller a lot. But Frank Miller did a Dark Knight cover for the final issue of mm-hmm. Amazing Man number 12, which was 
completely intended just to boost sales. Yeah. I mean, which I thought was great. I mean, they just admitted it like, hey, if we can get a couple extra people to try Amazing Man because they want their, their Frank Miller Batman completists, then let's do it. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a really cute human interest thing. There's, a, there's another character in the book that has a dog head. He's a human, but his head looks like a dog. And it was like that was like one too many weird elements. Like you were already you're already kind of this is already like a tough sell to comic book fans weaned on superhero action. And then you've got like, wait a minute, why is there that part always bothered me? I was like, why does he have a dog head? But um and it's never explained. He just he just does. But I still – I've gone back and read some of the Amazing Mans because I have them. I still have them. And I, they still retain that just kind of nice whimsy and, you know, like I actually could – I know, again, on the Fire and Water Podcast, I talk a lot about Sugar and Spike. Mm-hmm. I actually could, could have seen uh, Rosakis and DiStefano doing Sugar and Spike. I think they – Amazing Man had that same kind of whimsy to it. And I think they – if they had ever wanted to do Sugar and Spike again, I could have seen they might have been a decent team because I love DiStefano's art like you. He designed that Black Canary costume that nobody yep. likes, but, you know, he's done lots of other great things. Uh, so, yeah, and, and, and uh, you know what? And I'm appreciative of uh, whoever designed – whoever deigned to put him in here and give him most of the cover. Yeah, he does. This. The cover – oh, I love the cover of this. Yeah, it's really cute. It's really cute. So I, you're good on you, DC, for, for doing this. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, do you have any recommended reading as far as – Amazing Man goes. Well, you want to try the Amazing Man Absolute Edition, of course, in hardcover. For that's uh, retails for ninety nine ninety five. Now, go. You can get the, the later issues of Amazing Man and the specials were unfortunately subjected to the horrors of flexographic printing. Uh, and it really, if you look at this page, you see how detailed the Stefano stuff is, mm-hmm. and his work really suffered to me under flexographic when because that that thing was still those machines were still haunted at that point. So. If you're going to try Amazing Man, buy the first couple. That was before they kicked in on Flexographic, and the, I think the first couple are the best ones. So, you know, and you can pick them up for literally, like, next to nothing. Okay. You can get them on eBay for, like, a buck each if you don't, you know, you don't, you're not obsessed with them being slabbed and in mint condition or whatever. But give if you like— Professor just, Allen would never allow you to spend that much. On no, exactly. Yeah, they would be perfect quarter bin comics. And, in fact, I wouldn't be shocked if they show up because I, I wouldn't think they have any back issue value to anybody. Yeah. But it was, a cute, it was a cute little series, and, again, I like that DC has never completely forgotten him. That's good. Okay, well, Rob, thank you very much for coming back to the Secret Origins podcast to talk about this character. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more about your thoughts on characters? I don't think this segment is worthy of a plug, really. Uh, but uh, if you're insisting, let's say the Fire and Water Podcast, which you can find it uh, on iTunes and Stitcher and at firewaterpodcast.blogspot.com. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming back, and I look forward to having you again in the future. Thanks, Ryan. Don't go away, listeners, because we're going to take a short promotional break, and when we come back, yet another secret origin. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but... What will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Some like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, 
Quasar. Ah, oh, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that, that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? Is it any wonder? We're back, folks, and I am proud to introduce another guest making his podcast debut right here on Secret Origins. Please welcome Al Girding, who you might know as Van Z. How are you doing, Al? Good, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a big fan of this podcast. You do an excellent job on it. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. And seriously, thank you for being part of this show. And thank you for stepping in when I needed you like this. Uh, I'm going to let our listeners behind the curtain a bit, sort of a secret of the Secret Origins podcast. This segment, which covers the Golden Age Hour Man, was originally scheduled to be recorded with Gene Hendricks, who covered the Spectre Origin with me last episode. We set up a date to record, but then Gene's schedule at home changed a little abruptly. We tried coming up with alternate times to record, but our schedules just weren't lining up. Meanwhile, the clock was ticking, as befits the character Hour Man, and I was falling behind on my recording sessions because the editing of some of the recent episodes was taking so long. And also, you know, other life stuff. So all that is to say that Gene and I couldn't make it work out this time. Hopefully I can get him back on another episode somewhere down the line. He did give me two weeks' notice before this episode was scheduled to come out, hoping I would have enough time to find a replacement guest. Well, one of the benefits of having a show as popular as this has become is that it only took me two minutes to find someone who wanted to talk about Secret Origins. And that brings us to Al slash Van Z making his first appearance on Secret Origins about ten episodes earlier than we originally planned. So, again, thank you for joining the show. Not a problem. Gene, thanks for being busy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, okay, enough preamble. We are talking about Our Man. Al, can you let the listeners know how and when you first came across this character? I think I first experienced Our Man the same issue and the same time as I discovered the Justice Society. I'm a little bit older. I'm 44 years old, and I was young enough or old enough, the way you want to see that, is to purchase copies of All-Star Comics back in the 70s. And the first one I remember having was issue 64 and 65. That's the one where the JSA goes back in time for Camelot. Now, Our Man, his only highlight in that first uh, issue was very small. He gets to pull the lever to send them back in time. So it's not very exciting on Our Man's part. And the second issue there wasn't any better. He was actually being mind-controlled by the Injustice Society. So I got a little bit of a, of a glimpse of him, and uh, he was intriguing. I like the costume. It's a good color scheme, so that always catches my eye when I was a young kid. Uh, but the next time I really got flavor for him was at DC Comics Presents 25, and uh, it's uh, Whatever Happened to Our Man. And I think that's the first time I really had any knowledge of you know Rex Tyler and that art in that issue it was by Charles Nichols 
it wasn't as sharp or as crisp as maybe a George Perez, but I want to call it more simplistic and very elegant. And I didn't know what that was back when I was nine or ten years old, but it was a nice character to look at. I liked his power set, and uh, I followed him ever since. And right after that was the best JLA-JSA crossover, issues 195 to 197 with George Perez. Mm-hmm. And the way they drew him in those uh, issues, I just fell in love with him. He is a great character to follow. That was a great story. He, yeah, he, he looked especially good in that story. Uh, I was trying to remember, and my first exposure to him must have been when I was reading Sandman Mystery Theater in the 90s, uh, which was one of the few sort of DC books that I was keeping up with during that decade. And he showed up in a four-issue story arc, issues 29 to 32, I think. Um, and, of course, it was Matt Wagner's approach to you know the, the characters was much more... Less superhero-y, more kind of, you know, that, that kind of urban realism. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a great character. He uh, invented the pill that gave him the superpower for one hour. Uh, I didn't uh, necessarily – I mean, well, I should say at the time I liked the fact that when he was using the pills, he was kind of loopy and you could sort of sell that it was affecting his mind. Um, he was playing with addiction and this performance-enhancing substance, and uh, I think Wagner was trying to get into some other subversive ideas with that that weren't really apparent in the early stories. But after that, it was it was like a decade later when I started reading JSA, and I remembered this character. And he was always a character that I liked the idea of. I loved his costume. The look of him is really simple, and the idea, the power set, is really simple. He takes a drug that gives him super strength for one hour. For somebody created in 1940, it's so perfect. It's so simple. You don't need a whole lot of... I, I don't know. I, I don't have another word like that. It's simple, but it works. It's like on this primordial level, I think it was just a really cool idea. It's another wish fulfillment uh, character or superhero. Yeah. As you'll see in this story, he's very meek and mild, mm-hmm. and you take that pill, and, and you're more aggressive, you're more outgoing, and uh, it's uh, something that everybody, especially kids who stay home reading comics all the time, mm-hmm. they might feel left out in school or because they're not a sports star things like that. So this might be a way to get into the superhero frame of mind to gain more confidence and things like that. So I think that appeals to a lot of kids. No, I totally agree. You're right. It's, it does have that wish fulfillment idea. And it actually, we're going to get into this a little bit later after we go over the story, but the, the character as he is presented in this story feels similar to more of the, the Marvel characters in a little bit. And we'll talk more about that. Let us uh, get into the publication history, and I've got a bit of my write-up for who Our Man is and where he came from. At the end of this, if I leave any major details out, if I forget anything, feel free to jump in and correct me. Um, But here we go. Rex Tyler, better known as the Our Man, was created by writer Gardner Fox and artist Bernard Bailey for a story premiering in Adventure Comics number 48. That issue of Adventure, which sported a Bailey-drawn cover of the Our Man swinging into action from a metal chain, would have hit stands around February 8, 1940, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. After his debut, the Our Man appeared in the next 35 issues of Adventure Comics. He succeeded the Golden Age Sandman in gracing most of the covers for the next year, but was himself unseated by the debut of Starman. 
Three months after his first appearance in Adventure Comics, the Our Man would appear in New York World's Fair Comics issue 2, a book that also included stories featuring the likes of Superman and Batman, and All-Star Comics number 1, which also featured The Flash, Hawkman, and The Spectre. As preposterous as this may sound today, the book with Superman and Batman is more of a distant afterthought when compared to what All-Star Comics would become. With All-Star Issue 3 in November of 1940, Our Man became one of the eight founding members of the Justice Society of America. However, Our Man would leave the Justice Society after All-Star Comics number 7, becoming the first member of the team to depart without being made an honorary member because he was popular enough to get his own quarterly book, like The Flash and Green Lantern. As with the covers to Adventure Comics, the Star Man would succeed Our Man on the Justice Society's roster. For the next year or so, Our Man appeared only in his regular feature in Adventure Comics. His final Golden Age appearance was in issue 83 at the end of 1942. Two decades later, though, the Our Man would appear with the Justice Society compatriots in the first-ever JLA-JSA team-up in Justice League of America issues 21 and 22. He returned in several of the Earth-1, Earth-2 crossovers throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s before the crisis. He came back to the newly resurrected All-Star Comics with issue 62 in 1976, and eventually the All-Star Squadron with issue 31 in 1983. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Roy Thomas kept Our Man in semi-regular rotation in All-Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, and Young All-Stars. He also created the second Our Man, Rick Tyler, son of Rex, for Infinity Incorporated, and the character who will serve as inspiration for the telling of Our Man's story in this secret origin story. Al, did I miss anything important? Was there anything that I left out you wanted to add? No, I do think Our Man kind of got a raw deal with Green Lantern getting his own book because with Green Lantern getting his own book, he therefore becomes an honorary member of the Justice Society and he gets replaced. The thing is, I think the creators were looking for somebody with similar uh, maybe power set and you know, a similar look and things like that. And that was Starman. Mm. So as Starman kind of bumps Our Man after the JSA out of only – three or four issues, he kind of bumps him out of Adventure Comics after 35 issues. So uh, he, you don't get to see, you don't have a whole lot of experience with uh, Our Man in the Golden Age because he just really didn't last that long. And then was it in All-Star Squadron that he sort of explained that Our Man was picked up basically by Uncle Sam and taken to the other Earth? Uh, it was actually an all-star squadron, one of the annuals, and it was the one with all the supervillains and all the superheroes. And Ian Karkle's energy gets dissipated into all the superheroes. That's where they showed where Our Man had to take a couple Miraclo pills. And then he started having those uh, those uh, addiction symptoms and withdrawal symptoms and things like that, the bad side effects. So he actually quit or took a leave of absence from the Justice Society at that time. And then in the regular All-Star Squadron series, it does show where uh, Uncle Sam gets him right after the uh, the leave of absence, and he joins the first incarnation of the Freedom Fighters. Right, right. So. Have you seen the cover to Adventure Comics 48, Our Man's first cover? Yes, I did. I really like that cover. I was just kind of looking through it, going over research. I don't remember seeing it before. Um, but it's a really cool cover. It's him swinging. It's not an action-packed cover. You don't see him using his super strength, which is weird because that really was his whole deal. He's not beating anybody up. But Bernard Bailey draws this really cool. It's more of a close-up shot than you really saw in a lot of those Golden Age comics. Um, it's very much 
it, it's a poster shot. You know, you would see yes, he's swinging on this chain. It's he's smiling. It looks like a really cool adventure type of character. The one thing I never understood about Hour Man, however, was the hourglass around his neck. If that was to keep track of the time he had left, all his swinging and fighting, you would think that would get a little disheveled. So he really wouldn't know. But, I mean, it's a good plot point. It's the golden age, so I went along with it. Yeah, if the character was created today, he wouldn't have the hourglass. He would just have, you know, an iPhone or something with an alert, like, you know, taped to his leg or something. Yeah, if you're a supervillain and you knew what it was, you would just stall out until all the sand ran out, and then you would go beat up Our Man. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let's get into the story. Um, this synopsis was actually provided by Gene Hendricks. He wrote this up when he thought he was going to be covering the character. So I'm going to use the same write-up to give him a sense of presence and ownership of this episode, even though he couldn't be here. Also because he already did the work and I'm too lazy to write my own. The Secret Origin of the Golden Age Our Man is written by Roy and Danette Thomas, penciled by Michael Baer, inked by Mike Gustavich, lettered by David Cody Weiss and Augustin Moss, and colored by Carl Gafford. Even though we know this is Roy Thomas's show, Robert Greenberger gets the coordinating editor credit for the last time in the regular issues of Secret Origins. He did edit the first annual, but other than that, he will be gone from this title. Our story opens with a letter written on September 14th, 1985. And sorry, I gotta interrupt. That's right, folks. 30 years ago to the day, if you're listening to this episode, the day it drops. September 14th. 30 years ago. Anyway, the letter is from Rex Tyler to his son Rick, explaining why being a superhero isn't all wondrous adventures. We're taken back to New Year's Eve 1939, where Rex Tyler, dressed as our man, tries to prevent a party from being robbed. He's knocked out, however, and we jump back to a week before at Bannermain Chemicals. Here we find timid, clumsy, yet extremely punctual Tick-Tock Tyler, punching the time clock and dropping his briefcase. Mr. Bannermain badgers Tyler about the nerve gas antidote he's been working on. His daughter, Beverly Bannermain, defends Rex to both her father and his fellow chemists. She takes Rex aside and tries to get him to be more assertive, but gives up when Rex explains that he's just happy to have a job during the Depression. At the end of the day, Rex tries to ask Beverly out, but her father implies that Rex has to work overtime and that the Bannermains will be attending the carnival. Rex then goes back to his lab, but he doesn't work on any authorized project. Instead, he continues developing his Miraclo formula. He gives the latest batch to a test rat, which then goes berserk. It turns out that the rat had gained super strength and stamina. After an hour, the rat collapses, and Rex puts him back in his cage. As Rex leaves, however, the rat tries to chew his way out in order to get more of the formula. Walking home and considering how best to make money off of his formula, Rex picks up a newspaper and sees a story on the first appearance of The Flash. Suddenly, he has an urge to test his formula on himself and become a superhero in his own right. Rex decides to tell Beverly of his plan to gain superpowers, so he walks to the carnival. On the way, he pulls out a pill of the experimental yet not complete formula. So why is it in a pill form yet? Anyway, he takes the pill, heedless of the consequences, and it has no effect. He arrives at the carnival, wondering why nothing happened, and takes in the sights until he reaches the strength test. Rex pays his two bits and smashes down with the hammer, sending the weight up so hard that the bell is knocked off the top of the scale. 
Panicked at his newfound strength, Rex bolts, running away at super speed into a storeroom. In this room, he finds all of the components to make his costume, which he puts on lest anyone recognize him. The Carnies, angry that the Rube would dare damage their property, chase him inside. Not wanting to fight them, Rex instead bursts through a brick wall and leaps to the nearest rooftop. For the next 50 minutes, he becomes Toby Maguire leaping through the city. In mid-leap, Rex loses his abilities, falling to his death from a great height. End of story. Wait, no. He apparently landed on his feet with no adverse effects other than the headache that was the after-effect of the drug. Unknowingly hooked on the drug, Rex vowed to use himself as a test tube until it is perfected. He walks back to the chemical plant, hiding his perfectly tailored, despite having only been found in pieces, costume behind the rat cage. At this point, Rex notices that the rat has clawed the cage so much that its paws are bleeding, all in an attempt to get at the drugged hot chocolate. Rex realizes that the drug is incredibly addictive, but he rationalizes that it must only be so to rats. He then dreams up a way to help people by adjusting the already perfectly fitting costume and placing an ad in the newspaper asking people to write to him for help. So concerned was he about protecting his identity with this costume that he forgot that he put his home address in the ad. The first person Rex decides to help is an old lady who has lent rent money, and the only way to repay it is for her son to help the lender in a robbery, the very same robbery that opened the story. As part of his preparations for taking down the criminals, Rex ignores all the other letters he's received and instead creates a state-of-the-art timing device to tell him when his hour of superpowers is up, also known as an hourglass. New Year's Eve arrives, and the newly dubbed Our Man leaves a note for Kenton, the old lady's son, warning him not to take part in the robbery. After Rex wakes from the blow that knocked him out on page 3, Our Man chases the getaway car, still waiting for the Miraclo to kick in. The drug finally does kick in, just as the car turns around and runs into Our Man, who lands unaffected. One of the crooks shoots at a chasing police car, causing it to run off the road, and they manage to get away. Back at the hideout, Kenton wants out, saying that they told him there would be no killing. As the others explain that the cops had it coming, our man crashes through the window. He makes quick work of the gang. He then takes Kenton and holds him over a ledge until he promises to go straight. Rex concludes his letter to Rick that he's close to making Miraclo safe for use, and asks his son to hold off on using it until it's perfected, and then Rick can become our man with Rex's blessing. All right. Your thoughts on the story? This had to be a very tough origin for Roy Thomas to tell because this is set, or he wrote this in the 80s, and in the early 80s, there's Nancy Reagan's big Say No to Drugs campaign. Mm -hmm. And this is a hero that's been around for 40 years, and he does get his powers, and he does get his confidence, and he does get his aggressiveness from popping a pill, basically. And this is an addiction that he struggles with his whole life. So it had to be hard to write this because I view this origin in two different segments. Anything that happened after he places the newspaper ad, that is basically shown in the Golden Age. All the stuff prior to that with him working at the uh, Banner Main chemical plant and him, you know, as far as uh, testing it on the rat and everything like that, I don't believe that takes place in the Golden Age story. So it's kind of like a timepiece where you have to address those concerns when you write it. It is a very marvelous, is that a way, uh, is that a word, marvelous way to show your heroes have faults and flaws and how you follow with them to see how they overcome them. And uh, with that respect, like you mentioned, um, he doesn't know what he's going to do 
with that formula when he develops it. He thinks, hey, how do I cash in on it? He thinks maybe in a patriotic way, maybe I can give it to Uncle Sam. He could use it on his soldiers. But then basically when it comes down to it, it's all about impressing girls. He wants to go show Beverly what he has done. And uh, eventually he gets into the heroic mindset where he places the ad. I liked it. I mean, the first part with him and the rat, wasn't as good as the action sequence at the end, but it's a hard story to tell in the eighties by Roy Thomas, just because of what was going on at that time. I know that. And that kind of was my initial thought was this felt like two different stories, not, not necessarily two different plots, but two different tones. And as you picked up on like everything having to do with the lat, like when, when they show the rat in the cage and everything, Michael bear draws, that's like horrific imagery. You really get this feral sense that this rat is like to borrow the cliche, it's like ready to chew its arm off to get this drug. And we, we do kind of get a little bit of a sense that, you know, Rex isn't being 100% honest with himself and he's kind of downplaying the effects, but we're starting to see them. But then you get into these broad sweeping adventure scenarios where he's running around and he's leaping, he's punching through brick walls, he's taking on criminals. And it does it feels like Roy is telling two different stories with two different feels and exactly. and he has to address both of them because his natural instinct is to recapture that golden age spirit that sense of fun that sense of newness and he really wants to pay homage to that but you're right this is the late 80s when he's writing yeah. the story he has to address the fact that you know as south park would say drugs are bad okay so <laughs> This is Marvel's effect on comic books, though, because yeah. before that, all you got from DC was the adventure and the crime busting and the fights and things like that. And now you start to see your superheroes have some flaws. And that's good, too. That's just the evolution of comics and to see how they overcome them. So I enjoy that as well. This is a nice mix of those two eras, the Golden Age era and the... I hate to say it, but the Marvel era, when they come into play there. This is a little bit different than the Golden Age story. Our man, when he first appears, also uses a tear gas ring. And for years and years and years, I did not know our man ever used a tear gas ring. But I believe that uh, shows up in his first appearance back in the day as well. Hmm. So it's interesting. And a a neat reminder here, a neat uh, point was the main villain, or not really the villain, but the guy who the mom is trying to save. In this story, his name is uh, Jack Kenton, or John Kenton, and in the old days, in the golden age, it was John Kennedy. So I think we know... I think we know why Roy Thomas changed that. Yeah, and I think in uh, – I was looking it up, and in that original story, he was trying to save the woman's husband who, was yes. got, who got involved in the gangs, John Kennedy. And they changed the name to Kenton for this story, and it's her son. And this uh, – aspects of this story is revisited in that Sandman mystery theater that I spoke about at the top. And in that, they change his name again. I think it's Jeremy Kenton or – like. They, they change his name yet again. It's always the same basic idea, but they, they tweak the character a little bit. Uh, one more uh, thing about the – as we keep bringing up the, the kind of Marvel parallel to this, uh, there is a, a moment on page five when Beverly is talking to Rex, and she says – she basically accuses him of being a cog in the mighty marvelous machine or her dad's mighty marvelous machine. Now, that might be a knock against Marvel. Uh, I don't know what Roy Thomas's relationship was that company he had been the editor-in-chief at Marvel only about a decade before this, 
but yeah, assuming it might just have been like a, a kind of like you know friendly tongue in cheek kind of reference. But yeah, as I was reading this, I was like Rex. He feels like a Marvel hero from that that early Stanley Jack Kirby age. Yeah. He's a scientist developing something that. He sort of tests on himself. I mean, it's it's not dissimilar to the Hulk or Spider-Man or Reed Richards or Ant-Man. I mean, he would kind of fit in with those group of characters. There's a lot of overreaction in this book, too. If you're at a carnival and, and you take a pill to ga- gain this strength and confidence and you smash a bell, why are you running off? <laughs> and then why are the carnival people chasing them? I mean, this guy just destroyed your bell. You should be getting away from him. But everybody's overreacting in this story. Or there should be a ringmaster like offering him a job as in the carnival in the circus. You're, exactly. our, new, you're our new strong man. Exactly. All right, uh, let's go through this a little bit uh, in more detail. What do you think of like the opening page, that first splash, like a half page splash of the hour man up against the clock tower? It's very symbolic. It looks real crisp. Uh, I do like the art on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that second page, though, all the guests in their costumes. In that second panel or maybe third panel you'd want to see, I don't think women were dressing up like Catwoman in, <laughs> in 1939. Yeah, Michael Bear, he is just – this thing is loaded with cameos. Yeah. And he – well, he had previ- he did the Golden Age Sandman origin in issue 7, which had a ton of cameos at the World's Fair. Uh, and it feels like he's doing a lot of that too. But in these successive panels going down on page 2 – that is a very Frank Miller-style Catwoman. Yes. The, below that, you've got what looks like Guy Fox from V for Vendetta. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice that before, but you are right. And then at the bottom, the uh, the robbers, they look like the mutants from Miller's Dark Knight Returns. They do. Yeah, it's like all, the red goggles and everything. And, it's all in the shades. They look exactly like them. So that is just a few of the cameos. Then on page 9, when Rex is at the newsstand... There is a sign. It looks like a cop is like dispersing some kids. There's a sign by the cop that says Simon and Kirby. Okay. <laughs> um, and right next to that sign, Simon and Kirby's most famous creation, it looks like Captain America is reading a newspaper. It's a guy in blue with red gloves and what could be a shield behind him. <laughs> so wrong universe, but that definitely looks like an homage to Captain America. I don't know if that was Roy Thomas first. That seems more like something Michael Bear put in. Maybe he really liked the character. In the storeroom where he first uh, gets his costume, it looks like Vigilante has also visited that storeroom as well. Yeah, you got the white hat and the red bandana covering the bust on the hell. Yeah, I I noticed that too. It definitely looks like a Vigilante setup. Uh, On page 11, the bottom left corner panel, uh, Rex is walking. There are two other guys kind of walking in front of him. The one directly to his left, which is in profile, kind of looking at him, that almost looks like Roy Thomas himself. Like, that looks like Michael Baird drew a portrait of Roy Thomas for issue seven that he put him in the New York World's Fair. I can. It, it could have been Michael Baird. It could have been Roy Thomas telling him to do so. Yeah. I know you and I have had our message conversations about Roy Thomas, and I am a huge Roy Thomas fan. Everything that he has written. And I didn't know it at the time when I was younger, but I his uh, sensibilities or his interest seemed to mirror my own. So I am a huge Roy Thomas fan. Um, so I could see him putting himself into this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I know retroactively, 
Roy Thomas made that first meeting of the Justice Society in November, uh, boy, what year was it, 1940, was actually his birth date, his actual birth date. So he retroactively changed that first meeting of the JSA to his actual birth date. So he likes to do things like that. And, uh, I mean, I sometimes take him to task. I never doubt his love and his affection for these characters. I know how much he, he adores these stories and these people. I think sometimes that love perhaps intruded on the best way to deliver the story, but we can talk a little bit about that later. Um, Getting back to that same panel, though, the guy in the front of them, that face looks really familiar, but I can't think of who it might be. Like, it it almost reminds me of, like, Orson Welles, and I can't imagine what the Orson Welles connection to this was. I mean... Yeah, I can't place that either. It seems like it's such a weird face to put in the foreground. I think that is probably supposed to be somebody. I just don't know who it is. Um, on another little set of like cameos from other kind of pulp characters, on page 14, right after he gets the costume and what le- looks like the vigilante hat, he leaves. There are a couple of carnies chasing him. One of them has a kind of Joker color scheme. He's got white face, green hair, and like a purplish jacket. Behind him, there's a guy who looks like the Phantom. Yes. <laughs> like a I noticed that too. Suit. Yeah. And then the, the kind of like the biggest, strangest one, at the end when he tracks them to their uh, the criminals' hideout, Daredevil is their leader. <laughs> There's a, like all of the crooks have these kind of like red shades, these red glasses, but for some reason their leader is dressed in a full red bodysuit with devil horns. And it is almost an exact likeness to Daredevil. And I made a joke when we covered the Crimson Avenger origin in issue five because the Crimson Avenger went to this costume party and I thought Gene Colan drew Daredevil in that because Gene Colan drew Daredevil way back when. I don't know what the connection is here. I don't know why this guy is here. If any of our listeners can come up with any reason why somebody dressed like Daredevil would be in a DC comic, let alone the Our Man's origin leading a group of criminals, let us know. Any other major details, major things from the story that you noticed? No, it was a fun story to reread. I do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't read any of the Golden Age Hour Man stories, so I don't know how much of the, the character's characterization was true. I don't know if he started off as this timid kind of milk toast guy who really changed personality once he started popping pills, or if that was an invention by Roy Thomas for this story. Do you know? No, he is very meek and mild. It's actually astonishing how meek and mild, because I was a fan for years and years and years, and then you finally get the chance to read some of these Golden Age stories, and you read it, and he really is what his boss called him, a milk toast kind of guy, if I'm pronouncing that right. And it it is so pronounced in that story where he, he takes that pill and he gains that confidence and strength and speed, and he goes out and fights crime. And then at the end of the story, when the hour wears off, he goes back to stuttering and stammering. That's how pronounced it is in that that Golden Age story. So uh, they really do push the fact that he truly is a meek and mild guy. There's one other kind of question that I had about in both instances, 
when Rex first takes the pill, there is not an immediate effect. And it seems to be triggered by some sort of strong emotional reaction. When he's first going to the strength test in the carnival, he swings the hammer, nothing happens. And it's only after he's kind of embarrassed by people laughing and the fear that Beverly is going to come and catch him because she's walking up with her father. That seems to be when the super strength kicks in. And then later, the first time he starts taking on the criminals at the, the New Year's Eve party, he gets knocked out pretty easily. And it seems like it, there's this delayed reaction. And I don't know if that was something inspired by the comics or if that was Roy trying to add uh, something else. But I, I don't ever remember that, aside from taking the pill, that there need to be like an adrenaline boost in order to activate the formula. That first Golden Age appearance, it actually starts with him having developed that pill. So really, when he wants to become our man, he would just pop that pill and then the adventure would proceed. There was certain instances, uh, and I think maybe in the first or second issue of All-Star Comics, if you ever get those reprints, he has solo adventures in there. And he's in a cabin, and uh, there is a time where he would pop the pill and it would take him a couple minutes to kick in. But um, really, in the Golden Age, it wasn't addressed. As soon as he took the Miraclo pill, mm-hmm. he, had, he had the power. Okay. That was kind of always what I assumed that it would be. So this was a little bit different than what I had read. Um, and maybe this was something that Roy Thomas planned to do within the future and never got around to it. I, I do not know a whole lot about the Rick Tyler character. My readings of... Uh, Infinity Inc. and even well I haven't read any of Young All-Stars but my readings of Infinity Incorporated is fairly thin I know he had this very different sort of costume that we get on the final page Uh, can you tell me like a little bit about the Rick Tyler version of Our Man? I believe Rick's first appearance in Infinity Incorporated was issue 20 where he visits a a local hospital with his dad and Nuclon's there and Charles McKnighter is a a doctor there. And that's also where you meet Beth Chappell, the second Dr. Midnight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and he wants to be an artist and his dad is pushing him into being a doctor or to go to medical school. And Rick was kind of a, a free spirit. He didn't want to be locked down like that. And I think if I remember that issue correctly, his father was taking him to go talk to Charles McNider to try to motivate him into taking his studies more seriously to go to medical school. And then, you know, there was talk about uh, traveling Europe and things like that. Now, at that time, I think that was right around when crisis was happening and there was an earthquake that shook that hospital. And one of the Miraclo pills fell out of Rex Tyler's container And Rick picked it up, and his dad pretty much threatened him not to take that because he knew how bad it was. Well, his dad comes out of retirement to help the people in the hospital become our man, but then he is in danger. So Rick pops that pill, and he gets the uh, same powers as his dad. Because I think Rex over time developed it where it only would work maybe on him specifically, Mm -hmm. but because Rick was his son, it might have taken a little bit longer like we were talking about before for his powers to activate but i think an issue that happened in issue 20 i think in issue 21 he actually gets the costume and and his father and him disagree over whether he should be the second hour man or not but you know uh I think that's when it started in issue 20 and 21. And then, of course, in issue 30, our man goes with the rest of the JSA to 
Ragnarok to fight uh, all the Norse gods and things like that. So from then on, I think Rick uses the the costume we're used to seeing Our Man in instead of the purple and red one. Okay. As I remember in JSA, he had more of a traditional costume or version of that. I, I do take that back. I think Rick had that original costume up until around the mid-30s because they team with the Global Guardians. Mm. And he, he thinks he, he has killed the wizard. And then he kind of goes into a little bit of a hiatus or semi-retirement until later on he gets his dad's costume now that I think about it. Okay. I do have a fun Our Man fact. Okay. And I am a big fan of comic books like anybody else. And I got my start with Super Friends like you hear everybody else Mm -hmm. had. Well, in the old Super Friends comic, uh, great comic series, by the way, in issue one in the letter pages where it has the editor and the writer and things like that, E. Nelson Bridwell was creating the comic book universe for the Super Friends. It wasn't exactly like the Justice League or anything like that. But, you know, in the cartoon series, they had Marvin and Wendy and Wonder Dog. Uh Well, he mentions that he had to develop a backstory for all these characters because that was never shown in the cartoon. So for Wendy, he decided to name her Wendy Harris, and that was the niece of Harvey Harris, who actually trained a young Bruce Wayne in detective uh, work. But Wendy Harris is also uh, the maiden name of our man's wife. And he speculates. Now, of course, this is coming from him, and he is creating this backstory. He speculates that the Wendy from uh, the Super Friends cartoon is the actual Earth-1 counterpart of Wendy Harris, our man's wife of Earth-2. So I thought that was interesting. Oh, wow. That actually brings me to a question, though, because we, we don't meet Wendy in this origin it seems like the the intended love interest was his boss's daughter, Beverly Bannerman, which, again, feels very, very Marvel age to me. You know, dating the daughter of the, the guy who hates you, very similar to kind of like Betty Ross and General Thunderbolt Ross. Was she a, an invention of the story, the Beverly Bannerman character, or was that something else? Did she appear in the Golden Age? <laughs> Uh, I don't believe she appeared in the Golden Age, Wendy Harris. I think her first appearance was in the mid-60s showcase comics for DC, uh, issues 55 and 56. Great comic books, by the way. Anybody who's interested in Our Man or Dr. Fate should pick these up. But Our Man is in those comics, and he is married to Wendy Harris, or he's engaged to Wendy Harris, maybe, Hmm. if I'm thinking that through. But that's the first time I remember her appearing. But that was 1965, so that was well before the Super Friends cartoon. That's such a a weird connection for Bridwell to make, that the Wendy from the Super Friends is this obscure character who never appeared on the show, but they would end up getting married. When I was a kid, I was so thirsty for anything JSA, you know. They would have Infinity Inc., and they're talking Brainwave Jr.'s mom is Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks. Well, then I had to know everything about Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks. So anytime that he DC would put out these little tidbits, it would just feed my mania, and I'd have to learn everything about it. So when, when creators would do things like that, of course, I dug that. As uh, as much as anybody, I, I was really into that when they'd give you like a little sneak peek or a little tidbit of information that I could research and and geek out about and bring it up, you know, 40 years later when I'm doing a podcast. All right. I know your love for Earth 2 and the Justice Society and the All-Star Comics characters. This has kind of a, been a running debate on the show. And 
as much as I respect Crisis on Infinite Earths and all of the stuff that it did, I prefer the two separate Earths. I like Earth 1 and Earth 2 to be separate, and I like the Justice Society of America characters to have been the premier heroes, not just of their era, but of their world on a parallel Earth. Where do you fall with that? Do you do you like them being on the same timeline like they did after Crisis, where they're just the heroes of the 40s, or do you want that, that divide, that separate universe? I do want the separate universe. It, I am a total pre-Crisis fan. I, I mean, I had enough time in. I read enough comic books pre-Crisis that although that uh, miniseries or maxi-series was a great read, I really don't like the result of that. And it, it probably was up until the Jeff John series, the late 90s, early 2000s, where they started piecing the things together well enough where I was really interested in it again. Because, uh, like I said, growing up in the 70s with All-Star Comics, the JLA-JSA crossovers, that was a great time of year. I really do like the pre-crisis stories best. Yeah, that's kind of where I fit in. Now, my reasons for it are strange, and I think they only apply to me, and it's because of the way I look at the characters and how iconic they are. And I... I, I keep coming back to this, and people argue with me, but I, I don't like the idea that the Alan Scott Green Lantern was like a beta test for the Green Lantern core. Um, and I don't like that the Jay Garrick Flash gets forgotten because he's not as popular as the Barry Allen version of the Flash, even though I like Barry Allen more, and I like Hal Jordan a little bit more, but I, I want those guys to be the best of what their world has to offer, and not just... Well, this one fell out of popularity because it's, you know, 40 years later on whatever sliding timescale they've got. Yeah, it seems like the creators are always quick to get rid of them because they're Golden Age characters. But they always, you know, there's enough fan support where they always find their way back and into new series. Back in 85, I thought I was done with them, and then they they appear later, and then another five years goes by, and then... They get another series and things like that. So they kind of go in spurts. And I think, let's see, since 2011, I haven't really seen, besides Convergence, the true Justice Society. I think it's time for them to come back. Yeah, I agree. I think they should come back. And I think it should be in their own little universe that they can inhabit. Back to our main specific. Uh, any big thoughts on the character? Any general ideas? Do you like him? I mean... I appreciate that you jumped in on the story as as last minute villain, but do you like Our Man? Is are you a fan of him? I am a fan of Our Man. Like I said in the seventies, when you're a kid, everything's visual, and he just had a cool look. You know, the black and yellow contrast, mm-hmm. and especially when George Perez drew him in some of the Justice League stories. I like the all black hood. I think that is a real sharp look to it. You know, different artists drew him differently as far as having a yellow hood with maybe a black front or, uh, you know, a, a shadowing effect and things like that. But what really caught my attention was George Perez drawing him, and it just looks so sharp, and he's such an appealing character. And he had the, the cool power set where he's super strong and, and fast and things like that. It, it was just an easy character to, to like back then. Yeah. I agree. And so much of it for me is, is the costume. It's such a simple look, such a simple idea. I agree. I like I like the yellow cape and the yellow hood, but I think it's done best when it has the, 
the black sort of shadow over the face. It's it's really actually it's really similar to the way Batman is often drawn. Like when you yeah. go back to the blue and gray classic new look Batman and how artists kind of captured the black around the facial features in order to make like the nose and the eyes pop a little bit more. Back in 2002, I think, so after maybe after Arrow is launching and DC was starting to move in their entertainment diver- divisions on more TV shows, so before The Flash was really launching, one of the characters that they talked about making a TV show was Our Man. And it never happened, but I remember a lot of people just kind of like scoffing and laughing at the idea. Like, Our Man? What? Like a... E or F list character, why, like why couldn't you pull out somebody a little bit more popular? But I think this character would lend himself to television really well. I mean, just given the nature of the power, it's pretty simple. It's pretty street level, and it's also got a built-in time factor. Once he pops that pill, he's got one hour to do what he needs to do. You think of how like a show like Twenty Four capitalized on that gimmick. I think it might be too late to do that. They have that. Um... What's that Bradley Cooper movie, Limitless, where he oh, takes the yeah. pill? Now they have a TV show about that. So basically, this uh, CIA agent or FBI agent or whatever he is, I don't really have experience with it. He takes this pill and he becomes basically the best a human can be. Mm-hmm. So I think now if they would develop an Hour Man show, it might be considered a copy of that. Um, back with Arrow, and I think maybe their second season, they did have a a pill or a drug called Mirakuru that I thought was supposed to be some kind of derivative or the Miraclo, but Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to see that Hour Man show anymore just because of what has developed since then with that other show. Right. Yeah, I agree. And and it's actually, it's a very similar to the idea that I put forth when, when Constantine was canceled. I thought, well, you know what? That show really needed to come out 15 years ago when the comic was more popular because... All of the stuff that that TV show was doing, you see in every other TV show right now. It just it wasn't special. I mean, it was yeah. nice for the, the fans of the comics to finally get that realized. But for a mainstream audience, we have seen an asshole British main character who's smarter than you. But the only reason you like him is because he's good at his job. And we have seen those monster of the weeks dealing with magic. There's a dozen TV shows like that. So that, that Constantine just wasn't going to last. Did you have any other thoughts about Our Man? Uh, no, I mean, it's. Uh, I enjoyed when they brought him back in the last Justice Society series. For the fans that don't know, he was taken from the time right before he was killed, Rex Tyler, I'm talking, and flung into a place called, I believe it was Time Point, for him to live for basically one hour where his son can go and visit him. And then through some happenings in that comic book series, he was brought back. So Rex Tyler, as of the end of the pre-New 52 universe, was still alive and in retirement. So it'd be nice to see him again. That's right. I have to go back and read those JSA books because I've forgotten all about how they developed their relationship between Rex and Rick with the, the time point and how they could spend that hour together. So. Any other recommended readings for Our Man stories or just Justice Society stories that you really enjoy? 
I'm going to say if you want to see uh, Our Man at its best, that previously mentioned Showcase 55 and 56 from the 60s. If you want to see him at the worst, you mentioned it. Uh, All-Star Squadron 31 to maybe 35, 36. You, you absolutely see him at the worst there uh, and how he overcomes. But, uh, yeah, he does make an appearance, and those are both great stories. And I would just recommend because, again, it's one of my favorite comics, the Sandman Mystery Theater it's issues 29 to 32. It has been collected in a trade called The Our Man and the Python. It's volume 6 of that series. Al, thank you very much for being part of this show. Do you have any projects to plug, or where can people find you online? I have nothing to plug. I do not do any podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to be on this one. It is one of my favorites. Um, basically, I do post on Facebook under Van Z. And uh, but, you know, if anybody wants to talk to me about superheroes or Golden Age characters or anything like that, I'm more than welcome a chance to talk to them. Well, thank you. And you will definitely be appearing on this show again in the future. One last time. Thanks for being on the Secret Origins podcast, Al. Thank you. Diablo Frank left a comment back on episode 13 that I didn't address last time. He presents, as he always does, an idea that is both interesting and distressing. He criticizes Tom's point that we can't be Batman, we can be Robin. Frank suggests we can't even be Robin. Really, as fans, we're all Johnny Thunder. You can read the whole comment on the WordPress page to track his reasoning and agree or disagree. But I did want to address another part of Frank's comment where he clarified an aspect of Wonder Woman and Fury that I didn't understand when he first brought it up. He says, There is no Wonder Woman family. Oddly, for a character as seemingly loving and inclusive as Diana Prince, she hardly has any close friendships of note outside Etta Candy and the Capitalises and Uh, The original Wonder Girl was Diana as a teenager, so once the concept was altered to create Donna Troy, that character was developed in Teen Titans, far removed from Wonder Woman. That's actually a really good point that I sometimes forget, because Donna Troy's creation was so screwed up. Wonder Girl was never Wonder Woman's sidekick. She never had a relationship to Diana the way Robin had with Batman or Wally had with The Flash. Wonder Girl didn't grow up with Wonder Woman. She grew up with the Teen Titans. So, yeah, I I get the point that Frank is making there. And then he continues, Then there's Cassie Sandsmark, who was briefly Diana's occasional sidekick before she too was taken over nigh-exclusively by the creators of Young Justice and Teen Titans, and in the New 52 is completely disassociated with Wonder Woman. That leaves longtime frenemy Artemis, who is the Jean-Paul Valley of the non-Wonder Woman family that I'd like to see come into existence through the restoration of characters like Fury, but won't because Wonder Woman is just a Superman-supporting character now anyway. Now I see what Frank was trying to say in the beginning. And in that case, yes, I would like to see Fury built up as a real character connected to Wonder Woman through their mythological heritage. But we need a costume redesign, because I think both her Infinity Incorporated and Young All-Stars versions look awful. Then on the Suicide Squad episode, Frank said, I always figured Darwin Cook owed a huge debt to Steve Englehart's The Origin of the Justice League minus one, but now I see that it was a 40-40 split with this yarn's material. 
Even if it wasn't a direct swipe, the same ground is trod. The only thing I took issue with was the insertion of Amanda Waller's life story, which felt extraneous and indulgent, plus the bleakness of those pages is ill-served by Hunt's light-hearted embellishment. I'm fond of the wall, but she needed more time, space, and a creative team tweak. Waller's jab at the Gipper reminded me once again that while Jeff Johns is sometimes very insightful, he simply did not get Amanda Waller at all, and a Johns-inflicted viscous conservative streak has contaminated her portrayal in outside media. She's LBJ, not G. Gordon Liddy. Totally agree there. And there was another episode 14 comment from Jimmy, who I think is Jimmy McGlinchey. He said, in the Suicide Squad episode, you posed the question whether Rick Flagg Sr. had been involved in the Suicide Squad stories from The War That Time Forgot, and asked if anyone who had the showcase could comment. I actually have that Showcase Presents volume, and can confirm that there is no Rick Flagg Sr. in the Suicide Squad stories therein. Apart from the name, there is very little that would link back to the post-crisis depiction of the World War II Suicide Squad, and the stories generally focused on just one or two characters. The two that turned up the most were a former Olympic toboggan athlete named Mace, whose fear during a race cost America the gold and the life of his toboggan partner, Morgan. Morgan's brother would blame Mace for costing his brother's life and for letting down his country and losing the race. Both would become members of the Suicide Squad, and both would be paired on missions, Morgan going to ensure Mace would not let down his country again. He would ensure this by always pointing a forty-five at Mace and saying he would kill him if he failed his duty. Even when Morgan broke his legs and dinosaurs attacked the pair, he would still have a gun trained at Mace. Wow. Uh, very interesting, Jimmy. I might have to track down some of those war comics and showcase. Moving on to last episode, which told the origins of Deadman and the Spectre. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Ange, Doug Zavisha, Eli, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, The Hammer Strikes, Martin Gray, Record Collector, Siskoid, Trekker Talk, and Vanilla Fingers. Awesome handle there. Over on Facebook, episode 15 received likes, mentions, and shares from Anthony Durso, Clinton Robson, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Jimmy McGlinchey, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Luke Dobb, Martin Gray, Mike Hartsburg, Richard Field, Rob Kelly, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Merrick, Sean M. Myers, Steve Leach, Tim Wallace, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. Gord Tolton said he was dying to listen to this episode. Get it? Because it was all about the ghosts? About the ghosts? No zombies? Gord also said, Dumping Corrigan in a barrel of wet cement and throwing him overboard always seemed like the ultimate murder. I can still recall working on a high steel concrete dam and just getting chills of thinking of that kind of death. In the final panels of the original, Corrigan sews his own costume. Say that again. Sewed his own costume. He has the powers of God, but he can't wave his arm and make a cloak. Thinking too hard, perhaps? But maybe Jim just didn't completely comprehend his new situation. That, and the fact that he could pal around with other superheroes in the JSA, indicates to me a desire to retain the humanity, something that was always missing in future iterations. Clinton Robson said, I think my first introduction to the Spectre and to Deadman was in the mid-90s, Spectre in and around the Zero Hour event, and Deadman in Kingdom Come, neither of which are what anybody would consider iconic depictions of the character. I must say, both characters have grown on me over the years, Spectre more than Deadman, I think. 
Zeb Oswalt said, Would have probably been better if Joe Kubert had drawn the Spectre issue. Still sounds like a fun comic. I mostly know Deadman from the Neil Adams trade paperbacks, the JLU cartoon, and the Kevin Smith Green Arrow run. Can't wait to hear the next issue. Gene Hendricks said, I just realized in listening to this how much of the anti-shag I am. I'm complaining about a woman's breast size and how she should cover up more. Richard Field said, It's because of this show I'm now tracking down old DC Comics. Well, thank you, Gord. Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, Zeb, Gene, and Richard for your comments on the Facebook page. And also thank you to Rob Kelly, who got a real kick out of my adolescent preference for Cable over Superman. I was stupid as a kid. What can I say? On the last episode, the question came up whether the Spectre had appeared yet in the post-Flashpoint DC Universe, whatever you want to call it. Well, a couple people reached out and informed me that Jim Corrigan and the Spectre can be found in Gotham by midnight. I can't quite pull the trigger and buy that book yet, but the more I hear about it, it really intrigues me. Jim Romalde was one of the guys who pointed that out to me, and he writes a monthly review of Gotham by Midnight for TheBatmanUniverse.net. Professor Allen also mentioned the book, and he's doing reviews of Gotham by Midnight for his new Dorkness to Light blog, and said the Spectre is a topic that will come up in the eventual Dorkness to Light podcast. So, two great places to check out reviews of Gotham by Midnight featuring the Spectre. Check those out. Okay, on to the WordPress comments for last episode, and there were a ton of great comments. Apparently, everybody loved this issue of Secret Origins more than I did, which is too bad because I love Deadman and the Spectre, and I really like their origins, but I had problems with the stories as they were presented in that issue. Anyway, you left great comments. I'm going to cherry-pick just a few bits, like always. At the top, Jeff Nettleton talked about how much he enjoyed the Dead Man story, his first encounters with the character, and commented on Andy Helfer and Kevin Maguire, things we all mostly agreed on. Then we got to the Spectre segment, and Jeff said, I'm going to have to depart greatly from you guys on this one. The Spectre, to me, has always been more of a great visual than a great character, except for the Fleischer and Apero Wrath of the Spectre. Those were so wonderfully inventive and gonzo that they overwhelmed my indifference to supernatural characters. The other book that regularly accomplished that was Michael T. Gilbert's Mr. Monster. Gilbert has a nice pulpy feel and ironic cartoony touch to his art that makes the horror more palatable to me. Gilbert is an artist I love. His cartoony style allows him to really offer up all kinds of weirdness, with liberal doses of irony. His Mr. Monster is one of my favorite comic book series. I'm not a horror fan, but I find the pulpier stuff more interesting rather than the Stephen King end of the spectrum. Gilbert does pulp in spades, and this is pure pulp. I liken it to the great Charlton's horror stories that Joe Staten drew. The cartoony nature allows the story to be bent and twisted in all kinds of directions that elevate it from the norm. I think Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine agrees with that, because he said, I remember loving this issue when it came out because they got Michael T. Gilbert, who's Mr. Monster I loved, to do the Spectre story. Even at the time, I knew what an unconventional choice that was, and I admired Roy, or whoever pushed for it, for going with Gilbert. Sure, maybe the story doesn't hold up as well as it should, but it's just so fun to look at, I forgive it its sins. Back to Jeff's comment, he talked about how much he liked the story because Thomas evoked the feel of Golden Age pulp, and he didn't think Roy's penchant for copying the Golden Age comics hurt this story the way it might have hurt other stories in the series. I responded to Jeff in the comments section, but to sum up, when Gene and I recorded that Spectre segment, which was six or seven weeks ago, I was pretty down on Roy. Today, 
I still believe everything I have said about the man and his work, but I'm tired of complaining about his approach to these secret origins. I'm not calling him a thief for taking someone else's words and doing very minimal polish. We all know how he felt about the Golden Age stories and what his thinking was when he adapted them. I'm not going to take any more shots at Roy Thomas for his approach to secret origins, unless I think it negatively affected the story. And in the Spectre's case, I think it did. He could have made the story better by breaking from the original material. As for the art, I didn't love it, certainly not as much as Jeff and Rob did, but my problem with it was that I don't think it fit the tone of the story. You guys may disagree, that's fine. Jeff also had a comment about something I said regarding the Giffen Dematis Justice League. He said, Looking at it in context of the period, Justice League was pretty darn good adventure comic as it began. After the first year, the comedy and character elements took over the main story, though not always. However, Justice League had been in sad shape for quite a while prior to the relaunch. With most of the big guns undergoing major revamps, this was a chance to create a real team, and in that, it succeeded quite well. At the time, it was a major breath of fresh air. In retrospect, it looks like an odd divergence, as we have seen many subsequent years of the big guns. Michael Chiaroscuro had a similar comment. I think that within the context of the day, the book was a revelation. The fact that it now seems like a junior varsity version of the team is really only due to what's come since, in my estimation. Because this was coming after the Detroit era, which really was, and still is, the most junior varsity version of the Justice League you can get. And I say that as a big fan of Zatanna, Vixen, Martian Manhunter, and Aquaman. I have no issue with the occasional JLA roster that contains heroes other than the Big Seven. I think it adds variety over the years that can provide nice balance over time. That said, I do prefer that they return to the traditional team most of all after periods of more offbeat versions of the team. But variety is the spice of life, after all. Plus, the Maguire-era Justice League book is now only remembered as a humor book, but there was a ton of action and drama, especially over the first few years. They both make good points, and I forgot, actually, that the Justice League faced real serious threats and stories after Legends before the humor took over. But after Crisis, we had so many reboots or reinventions of characters that mostly were designed to take the characters back to basics. Man of Steel, Batman Year One, Perez's Wonder Woman, the Longbow Hunters. But Justice League wasn't like that. We didn't get a reimagined origin of the core team. Not for years. Instead, we got this group of really weird, disparate characters. That I love, by the way. I'm not knocking the roster for great characters. Blue Beetle, Captain Marvel, Guy Gardner, Mr. Miracle, Dr. Fate, not to mention mainstays like Batman, Martian Manhunter, and my beloved Black Canary. After Crisis, Justice League should have been Morrison's JLA ten years earlier, the most powerful, most iconic heroes of DC's pantheon. I still would have loved to have read the Justice League International Gang for the serious drama and the bwahaha comedy that it gave us, just not as the super team of the universe, that's all. Uh, my best friend, Chris Franklin from the Supermates Podcast, yeah, you heard that, Shag. Chris is my best friend now. Chris said, I've never owned a copy of this issue, so it was a long time before I saw this cover. It was after the coming of Tim Sale, and you could have easily convinced me Sale drew this. It just looks like his style to me. Michael T. Gilbert did an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight where he riffs on several Batman artists like early Bob Kane, Dick Sprang, and Neil Adams. It's not bad by any means. From what I'm seeing here, I see what you two are saying. Had he reined his style in a bit, the grotesque aspects of the story would have played much better. 
It's odd that Thomas seemed to experiment and actually create more aspects of Batman's secret origin story than any other actual Golden Age adaptation. Maybe because Batman's origin, even then, was so familiar and adapted so often. And Chris was really excited to hear Gene Hendricks bring up the Reb Brown Captain America. Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl blog said, Ta, for another fun episode. I'm a big fan of Dead Man, going back to some pretty atrocious Bob Haney stories, such as the infamous World's Finest Comics 227, the Thomas Wayne Jr. story. As for a Dead Man catchline, how about better red than dead? No, that's awful. Stick to basking in Robin's puns. And Martin continued, I can see what they were going for with that cover, but yes, indeed, it just doesn't work. No surprise, though, that it's an Ed Hannigan design, given the splendid 80s work on the likes of Spectacular Spider-Man. I'm convinced Cloak & Dagger's fanbase was almost entirely due to his Spectacular Spider-Man covers. Then Charles Coletta pointed out that Deadman and the Spectre and the Phantom Stranger will appear in Scooby-Doo Team-Up Issue 13, due out in November. Jimmy mentioned that the New 52 Spectre actually began in the Phantom Stranger series. The Stranger was instrumental in orchestrating Jim Corgan's death, and that led them, understandably, to having some adversarial relationships. Another great depiction of both Deadman and Spectre can be found in the game and miniseries Books of Magic. Deadman was particularly well used in issuing warnings to Timothy Hunter, who is being hunted by evil magic wielders as Constantine guides him along the present users of magic, popping into bodies to issue warnings. Kyle Benning from King Size Comics Giant Size Fun said, My first introduction to Deadman in the comics outside of Who's Who was probably in the Action Comics Weekly Anthology series, which had a gorgeous Deadman ongoing feature drawn by a young Dan Jurgens and written by Mike Barron. He starred in the first 12 issues of Action Comics Weekly and then came back as a regular feature in stories still written by Barron, this time drawn by Kelly Jones. That stuff has never been reprinted, but Action Comics Weekly issues go cheap. I recommend tracking that down and giving it a read. You know, I completely forgot about Action Comics Weekly. I read the Dead Man stories in that and The Phantom Stranger, and I always forget about that when it comes to preparing this podcast. Kyle continues, On to the Spectre, I absolutely love his Golden Age appearances. He shows up and all hell breaks loose. The Old Testament real Wrath of God vengeance comes out as he decimates slumlords and scumbags. Siegel used the character as a take-no-prisoner social crusader, much like he did with Superman, but amped up to a whole nother level. After that, Kyle raised a really interesting point about the nature of God and Heaven in the Spectre stories. I'm sort of paraphrasing here and possibly bastardizing Kyle's point, but whatever. It's possible that I and other readers approach the story with a Christian idea of the afterlife, whereas the Spectre's creator, Jerry Siegel, may have written The Voice from a Jewish perspective. If that were the case, though, I see it kind of as a limitation of Siegel's approach, since a red-headed Jim Corrigan is most assuredly Irish Catholic. And Kyle highly recommends the Golden Age Spectre stories by Bernard Bailey, as well as the Jim Aparo stories from Adventure Comics. He adds, I really wish they could have had Aparo draw this story here. That would have been fantastic. My second choice would have been Sienkiewicz. Yeah, I can't argue. Either of those would have been fantastic choices for the Spectre story. Finally, Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, said, I am somewhat surprised at the overall review of this issue, as I thought it was the first one where I thoroughly enjoyed both halves of the book. And Ange talked about his reading experience with the Spectre and Deadman. 
Most of my early knowledge of Deadman came from the Dollar Adventure books, crossovers in The Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents, and reprints. Of course, for me, the best Deadman story is not one mentioned here at all. The story that Ange is referring to is, of course, Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot, which was written by Alan Brenner, drawn by Dick Giordano, and published in Christmas with the Superheroes, issue 2. This is an incredible story. It's a classic where Deadman encounters... Another ghost of sorts who can see and talk to him, and who calls herself Kara. It's obvious that the ghost is meant to be Kara Zor-El, otherwise known as Supergirl, who was never supposed to have existed after the crisis. It's a great read, it's a very sweet and touching love letter to a character who'd been written out of continuity at that time, and it's a horrible omission on my part that we did not mention it when Doug and I were covering the Dead Man section. Well, Ange reviewed that story over at his Supergirl blog. He provided a link that you can find in the comments section. You really should check that out. But that's not the only place you can hear him talk about it. Not anymore. Breaking news, hot off the wires. Ange just popped up on the latest episode of the Fire and Water podcast, talking about that dead man story with Rob Kelly. So you should listen to that episode, you know, after you listen to this one. Finally, second finally, another finally... This show got a new iTunes review, five stars from Igor Design 23. I think that might be Igor Glushkin. Uh, the review says, "Wow, thank you for hosting an amazing podcast on the DC Secret Origins comics run. I am currently collecting all the issues DC published back in the 80s, and just happened to find your podcast. Your co-hosts are great, along with yourself. You guys have a deep and true understanding, along with the love to discuss the writers and artists of that time era." Please, keep this podcast going, because like myself, there are others who are as enthusiastic about hearing it as I am. Well, thank you very much for that review, Igor. Thank you everyone who wrote into the show, or left comments, or promoted the show on social media. You are all fantastic. And of course, especially big thanks to Professor Allen, to Rob Kelly, and to Al Girding for appearing on this show. Feedback can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
Hey, man. How are you? Good. I just had to get that uh, chain mail on and the <laughs> it, I said get get my shirt off and make I mean every, everyone does record in costume, right? Yeah, I was going to say you're a method podcaster, aren't you? I mean, Shag wasn't joking about that, right? <laughs> I mean,